As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It does take discipline for me to sit down with a book, but I feel like when I'm reading it, it gives me so much pleasure. So you just called it broccoli, basically, but that was a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 140. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, this week, I got a fun message from What Should I Read Next listener, Katie, who wrote me this. I check out four or five books a week from my library, and probably 75% of my picks come from What Should I Read Next or Modern Mrs. Darcy recommendations. Today, I picked up Convenience Store Woman and That Kind of Mother, along with a few other books. The library clerk checking me out said, do you ever listen to What Should I Read Next? It was so fun to run into another fan in the wild, and we bonded over our deep affection for Anne Bogle and her literary matchmaking gift. Thanks so much to Katie for sharing that story. Readers, we would love to hear your own small world What Should I Read Next stories. The easiest way to contact us is to hit reply to our weekly email newsletter. You can sign up at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Katie messaged me on Instagram. That account is at whatshouldireadnext. And we also see great stories in our Apple podcast reviews every week. We would love for you to leave a review there because those reviews mean so much to podcasters like me. And tell us your story about how the show has connected you to other readers near or far. Today's guest, Cindy Wong Brandt, has gone through a lot of shifts in her life, spiritually, politically, family-wise. But my question to her today is, what do those shifts do to a person's reading life? It's a big question and led to an examination of how our identities can be reflected in what books we choose, the lenses we bring to what we read, what counts, imagine big quote marks there, as literary fiction, stories that help us understand the chaotic world around us, and so much more. It's a lot to cover, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Let's get to it. Cindy, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of your show, and I really need your help today. I am here for it, Cindy. When we first met in Michigan in 2016, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah, it was like the last Festival of Faith and Writing. Yes. Well, we had mutual friends that lived in the States and uh -huh. you had just gotten off an airplane. And I was really, really surprised to find out that you would come from halfway around the world to attend this conference. I'm based in the US and probably 80% of our guests are, but it's always fun to talk to somebody from around the world, even though the time zone math makes my brain break. Yeah. Well, we managed to make it work this time. I'm in the evening about to go to bed and you're just waking up. That is correct. You have been in Taiwan for some time. Can you tell me a little bit about your personal track that took you to Taiwan? Well, I was born and raised in Taiwan. I spent most of my life here. But I did go to America for college. Um, I went to Wheaton College in Illinois. Then I went to seminary after that. And that's about the extent of the time that I've spent in America. And then after that, I moved overseas for about six and a half years. We were in China my husband and I, and then we moved back home to Taiwan where I live now. And I've lived here for nine, 10 years. So this is where I'm based and where I've spent most of my time. You've written about how your upbringing in your life now has led to struggles with belonging. Could you tell me a little about that? 
Yes, I have. I mean, an identity crisis is part of my life in more ways than one. So, as you can imagine, because of my cross-cultural experiences, even when I was living in Taiwan, I went to a school for missionary kids. So it was an American school that's based in Taiwan, and that's where I learned my English. That's why I speak with an American accent. So many people ask me, "Oh, do they speak English in Taiwan?" And it's like, no, they. <laughs> most of us do not. But I learned it at that school for missionary children. And it's yeah, it's always been a struggle for me to figure out who I am, where I belong, and I don't really belong anywhere. And I've kind of come to make my peace with that. Although sometimes when you know something happens, it might trigger another identity crisis. But I've lived enough life now to learn how to manage it. But I've also、um, experienced a lot of identity crises with my faith. Because I grew up, like I said, in the school for missionary children, which is quite conservative, and then I've moved, you know, along the spectrum to the left, and so that's caused some anxiety, to say the least. So yeah, I'm really interested to talk to you because I feel like it affects my reading life. Like English is my second language, and so I read Chinese books growing up, and then I started reading English books, and. I feel like I'm maybe a little bit behind other people in terms of finding my reading identity. I feel like reading does affect culture and faith, and all these other issues are wrapped up in your reading life. Even if you're just reading fun novels, it's still we come to every book with our experiences and our lenses. And so, I'm excited to have you help me figure some of this stuff out. I'd love to hear a little more about shifting beliefs, and I don't mean just religious beliefs, but many of us have experienced that. Especially upbringing, like it's very natural to differentiate. That I think that's a psychological term, where you try to figure out what you believe outside of what your parents believe. So I do think it is natural for many of us to shift at some point in time. Yes, our reading lives can have a profound impact on our beliefs. Like whether or not we realize that we often have these core assumptions that profoundly impact the way we approach the world and the people in it. And a good book can get under your skin and make you reconsider what you think without even realizing you're doing it. And it's a and it's a relationship. Your books influence you, and you bring your interpretation to the text. So definitely all woven together. So you feel like you're having a little bit of a reading identity crisis. It's not so much a crisis. I'm still reading the books that I love and not reading the books that I don't love. But I guess sometimes I feel like I don't know where I belong. That same question that plagues me about other areas of my life, like I don't know if I am. You know, a literary reader, or if I'm an airport novel reader, or if I like YA, because I like a little bit of all those things. And sometimes I get a little intimidated. And like when we went to the festival, I did feel a little uncomfortable there because I don't know. Some of it felt a little too highbrow for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because I was just thinking the word lowbrow. Like anytime I go to any writing, anything. Really? Yes, because. I have a blog, and I feel like blogging is totally lowbrow in those circles. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a blogger too. I'm right, proud right, right. of being a blogger. <laughs> um, you know, I am too. And something I love about blogs is the same thing I love about books. There is no better way to start a conversation on the internet. Well, just to talk in wild superlatives, but I do love how blogs open conversations. Yeah, and invite reflection from other people with other experiences and other beliefs and other assumptions and other places in the world, and I really love that. But I had to think my way through that. Yeah, I love how blogs allow us to just be ourselves. Tell us a little bit about your blog. Well, I've been blogging for four or five years now, and I started off. Writing about culture, actually cross-cultural issues, just figuring out my belonging issues, <laughs> which is a common blogging path. Like <laughs> I'm thinking really hard about something, so I'm gonna put it on the internet. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's like free therapy. And then I started moving into the faith niche, which I just really enjoy conversations about faith. I st I still do. And then now I'm kind of moving into the parenting space, but I'm trying to integrate both. 
faith and parenting, because I find that most of the parenting space that's faith-based is quite conservative, which is fine, except that uh, that's not where I'm I'm at. And so I'm just feeling like there's a need. There's not very many progressives that talk about parenting. So I'm just trying to fill that need. So I've been doing that blogging on that for about two years, but I'm shifting into podcasting now. So I'm going to start yes. a podcast on the same content, same subject. We'll see how that goes. I was really excited to hear you were joining the ranks. It should be live now. What's that podcast called? We'll put links to everything in show notes for, so listeners can find it. It's called Parenting Forward. All right. Well, I cannot wait to listen. Okay. So thinking about your reading identity crisis, a framework that blew my mind when I went off to college is that one professor said that she expected a general pattern among her students. Freshmen arrive thinking, you know, they've got the world figure out. They still have some stuff that they need to learn, but they have a cohesive worldview. Then their freshman and sophomore years, it gets like systematically deconstructed. And then your junior and senior years, you put it back together and you don't have to go to college to appreciate the idea that often in life at times of big transitions, we have a coherent worldview. That's how we move about the days without, you know, like weeping in the corner sometimes, writing our poetry in our journal, trying to think it through. But we do have times where we're like, it's time to remake some things and reconsider some choices. So did you have a coherent reading identity before you feel like the ground under your feet got shaky? Did you see yourself as a certain kind of reader? I stopped enjoying the books that I used to enjoy, and it scared me a little bit. Like, for example, YA. That's a really good example. I used to really enjoy YA, and then I stopped. And I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago, there was a really controversial article that came out about YA. Yes, yes, I know the one you're going to say. Yeah. It was like, grow up. I know that it was slightly offensive and I agree that it was... Well, it was it was clickbaity. But I kind of resonated with it a little bit. I had just stopped liking YA. Although I did read John Green's um, The Turtle Book and I really liked that. Okay. So that was an exception. I was like, oh, what is happening to me? Why don't I like this anymore? Sometimes just feeling a little bit lost. Like what kind of books, even when I go on your site to look for books, I feel like there should be one genre of books that I love. And maybe I just need to make peace with the fact that it's okay to just like different kinds of books and be really random. And I don't need to have a cohesive reading identity. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm such a mess. No, I think this sounds delightful. Like, let's do it, Cindy. (laughs) I will say something I've come to really believe it really in the course of doing this podcast is that readers who have vibrant reading lives have the skill of identifying and choosing books that they are going to enjoy at a higher rate than that of the general population who like wanders into the bookstore and picks something based on, you know, the cover Hmm. or the recommendation of someone who may or may not have similar taste to them. So they may have acquired the skill so gradually over the course of their lives that they don't even realize that they have a very discrete set of procedures they follow in their minds, just totally like autopilot, like riding a bicycle. So they may not even realize they're doing it. They think like, I don't know, it's not hard, but it is hard. They've just learned how to do this very complex series of actions over time. And also just because a reader likes mysteries doesn't mean they're going to like all mysteries. There are books that are best of class that are just really, really good. And lots of readers like to hear, well, I don't usually read memoir, but this is a really good one. So I want to read it. Or science fiction isn't typically for me, but like, this is a stellar example of the genre. So even though I read one science fiction book a year, I loved that science fiction book. And Mm. then there's books that just really speak to us because Maybe the critics didn't love them and maybe our fellow readers don't understand what we see in it. But for whatever reason, that book spoke directly to us. Like we could Mm -hmm. connect with the characters or we knew where the author was coming from. So it was just right for us. Or maybe we found it at the right time. And yeah, I'm interested in hearing more about what you like and what you're looking for and help you, if not firmly create your new identity with a label, help you make peace with your, you know, standing on the borderlands. Sounds good. What you said was really good about how people who like mysteries don't like all mysteries. And I think sometimes I get excited about a certain genre and I read books in that genre. And then when I read one that I don't like, it doesn't mean that I don't like that genre altogether, but it makes me panic a little bit and be like, oh, do I not like this anymore? But maybe I just read one that didn't resonate with me. So that's actually helpful. 
yeah, so even with YA, maybe I just read one or two or three that I didn't like. That doesn't mean that I should dismiss it altogether or that I've, you know, I'm too grown up for it because I did read that John Green book and enjoy it. So um, maybe even within genres, there are books that appeal to me more. But that's what makes nailing that identity complicated because it's not <laughs> so like our reading identity is not necessarily limited to genre, right? No, I don't think so. Although I do think that many of us do have one genre where we really feel at home. Like that's our base mm, yeah. that we come back to. Like if we're in a rut or we're going on vacation or we need something on an airplane, like that may be more likely to be a sure thing. Yeah. Like a tried and true genre. Exactly. Cindy, I have so many questions for your reading life and I'd really love to hear what you're reading now and what these books are that make you feel like they're important enough to you to be part of your identity. So I think it's time to dive in. I'm ready. All right. Well, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And we will figure this out or at least move the ball forward. I will start with the one that was a no-brainer, which for me is Cutting for Stone. That is my all-time favorite book. So I feel like good literary fiction, sometimes it's kind of like eating vegetables where it takes a little bit of discipline. And I am, uh, like many other people, becoming very distracted by social media. And it does take discipline for me to sit down with a book. But I feel like Cutting for Stone is one of those books in my life that... It's just so appealing. And when I'm reading it, it gives me so much pleasure during the reading it instead of just afterwards. So I loved that book. And it's a book that I've read over and over again. So you just called it Broccoli, basically. But that was a compliment. But really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the kind with pine nuts and Parmesan that's been toasted until it's brown and crispy. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> with lots of cheese. Excellent. First of all, I personally love this book. Not that that's necessary, but that's, I mean, that's like a 600 pager. I mean, you have to put down your phone and like step away from Twitter, like over and over and over again, if you're going to get through this one. I'm just so in awe of a doctor who can write this well, because to me, it feels like a doctor uses a different side of the brain to have to remember um, all the information that they need to be a good doctor. He can spin and craft these stories that are complex and beautiful and use such rich narrative to describe it. I'm just in awe of Abraham Verghese for being able to pull it off. Cutting for Stone, it, it encompasses so many themes of life and romance. And I feel like the medical part of it brings it into this embodiment, just embodies everything about the human experience. And I'm not normally a medical person. I get a little bit queasy with blood and needles and all that, but I love the scenes of surgery in there because he integrates it into these larger themes of life and the meaning of life and the humor in it and the personalities of the characters characters. Uh, it's just so rich. Have you read anything else by Verghese? I have, but I'm having trouble recalling what they are. That one was my favorite. He's written a memoir called My Own Country that was probably the work he was best known for until Cutting for Stone. And then he's written another oh. one called The Tennis Player, I think. I haven't read anything else by him, but I'm curious because again, a doctor who writes. I think also the book resonated with me because it's a story about somebody who immigrates to America, right? And the different cultures. And of course, that's also my experience. Yes, there are many issues of cultural and national and familial identity going on here. And this right. spans decades. So there's lots of time and space for intricate, detailed, nuanced story to play out. There's mm -hmm. many characters in this book. Like there's a lot of moving parts. I think that's why I can read it each time and still enjoy it because I can't remember all the details. It still feels fresh every time I read it. I just So maybe that's part of why <laughs> I've been able to repeat this book because I don't normally read books more than once. Mm -hmm. How many times do you think you've read this? At least three or four. Yeah, there's a little bit of a mystery element to pull you through. Uh, this is not a happy book. It's hopeful though. Is that a happy place for you? Yeah, it, you're right. It's not. It's not a happy book, but... I'm okay with tragedy and 
I like the reality. I like the brutality of life and exploring those darker themes. I'm okay doing that through books. I don't like it so much in movies, but in a book, I find it meaningful. I wonder if that's because it's easier to see it in the mind's eye instead of see it on the screen. Or I wonder if it's because a book allows the kind of interior reflection and also a lot more nuance. Like you can examine the finer points in a book. Not that it can't be done in film, but it's harder just because the timeline of a movie is so compressed in comparison. Do you know, is that something you've thought about? Yes, because I, I, I can't watch any violence on the screen, but I can read some pretty brutal things in a book. I don't know why that is. I think, yeah, just I can protect my own imagination from the really gory stuff. I will keep that in mind. Cindy, what's another book you love? Okay, another one of my favorites is Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And again, it's another book about immigration and traveling between two nations and the struggles um, of identity. So I'm, I'm beginning to see a theme in these books that I like, even though I did not purposely choose, <laughs> choose it because of this. But I love Americana because it's about a blogger. I was really impressed with the way that was woven into the story in a way that really served it. That was neat. And I, I love the theme of hair. A lot of the story took place in the salon, in those conversations, which I've always thought was where the most meaningful conversations take place in my life, <laughs> talking with my hairdresser. So I love that setting. And of course, I loved even the controversial ending that so many people did not like. I loved it. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody talk about the ending being controversial. Or maybe I just zoned it out. Yeah, no, a lot of people didn't, didn't like the ending. Um, <gasps> they found it ethically questionable. So I don't know if we want to give spoilers, but... We, we do not want to give spoilers about this because we want the whole world to read it. I am like... There's only four minutes left in the movie, but surely everybody's going to get their heart's desire, right? Like we can make this happen. Right. That's how I feel reading books. Like I want good things to happen for the characters and kind of, you know, sometimes even the bad guys. So a lot of times, even though it's not the ending I wanted, I feel like it's the ending the book needs. Yes. Did you feel that way with Americana or no? It gave me my heart's desire. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go pull my copy off the shelf when we are finished talking. So it's a coincidence that's an immigrant story, but that's definitely not a bad thing for you. Identity issues are huge in yes. this book. It deals with racism. The character is Nigerian, just like the author. And so she has to navigate being black um, in America, but also she's not African-American. She's from Nigeria. So navigating that was really interesting to um, to hear her perspective. It's a little bit of satire against white liberals. Uh, she has lots of conversations with her university classmates. And so I think she pokes a lot of fun at the way people talk about race, like they know what they're talking about, but actually they don't live it. So I enjoyed that banter um, that's in there. And then also her counterpart, her partner, that's the, the love interest in the story. I think he stayed in Nigeria, but he grows up there and he moves into adulthood and establishes his career. And so there's that identity growth that isn't necessarily geographical, but chronological. And I didn't even realize what the title meant until I was well into the book when it's explained in the text, our heroine goes to America and feels completely out of place and like she doesn't belong. But Americana means in Nigeria, a person who's forgotten what it's like to be Nigerian because they went to mm. America and now they complain about things that everybody else is used to because they live in Nigeria. So when she left and felt unmoored, she couldn't just go home again. She kind of pokes fun at both Nigeria and Americans, but using this character that moves between the two countries. I think Adichie does it really well. I've heard of her at first from TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story, mm -hmm. which I th was really wonderful and enlightening for readers and writers. But so this is the only book that I've read of hers. I should try to read the other ones. Have you read her other ones? Yes. I think if you did really like Americana, that's... Half of a Yellow Sun is a good place to go next. It's set during the Biafran War, which I was Googling, like, did this really happen? Why did I not learn about this in history class? And mm. there's there's another um, interconnected web of relationships that's really uh, 
complex and messy mm-hmm. in ways that make for good fiction. Mm. Yeah, and, and that sounds really good. Yeah, I think so. I think you may enjoy it. Okay, cool. Cindy, what else do you love? So the third book is a nonfiction book, which I do read a lot of nonfiction. Um, and it's Between the World and Me by ta Coates. Yes. My husband just read this for the first time. He finished it yesterday. I was really excited. I mean, his writing is exquisite. I think he reads a lot of poetry and I don't know, I've never read his poetry, but you can tell from his prose that he, he's a poet. I pulled up a quote of his from the book, Between the World and Me. He says, poetry aims for an economy of truth. Loose and useless words must be discarded. And I found that these loose and useless words were not separate from loose and useless thoughts. And that's what his writing is like. It's very dense and substantial. Like he packs as much meaning as possible into every single word. So I love this book more for its level of writing and craft. He is able to describe the reality of being Black in America um, in a way that, of course, I have not experienced myself. But I do, I have followed up on um, the conversations between him and, and some other Black thought leaders, and I know that it's controversial, so I don't know if I necessarily agree with everything content-wise, but the writing, it's an exceptional book. Do you like books that could be described as conversation starters, like books that really get you thinking in a new way about something? Absolutely. I would definitely call this one of those books. It's an open letter. It's written as a letter to his son, his 16-year-old son, I think, just as a father telling his son what it's like to be Black in this world. It's not meant to be comprehensive, and I don't think he means it to be, but it's definitely a conversation starter, and it has started a lot of conversation in public consciousness. Now, Cindy, what's a book you didn't love? This was also really hard to think of because uh, I'm a writer, so it's always hard for me to say that there's a book I don't love when people have put in the work of writing it. But I didn't love, do you know uh, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Yes, I do. I didn't love the second book, the book that came after that. It's called... Today Will Be Different? Today Will Be Different, yes. This is another one of those examples where I think that I'm starting to fall out of love with humor books because I loved Where'd You Go, Bernadette because I had never read anything like it, like a dramedy incorporating humor into a serious story. Yeah, I loved it and I was so excited for Today Will Be Different, but it just wasn't for me. I don't know. I couldn't get through it. And I found that to be true with a lot of other humor books, too. I I don't know. Maybe it's because of Netflix (laughs) or social media and Twitter. Like, Twitter is hilarious. And so I feel like maybe I'm just getting my needs for funny stuff from those other outlets. And when I read a book, I want it to be serious and substantial. Not that humor can't be substantial, but... Yeah, I don't appreciate the experience of laughing, reading a book as much as I used to. Did you like Where'd You Go, Bernadette? I did. I did like it. But I think because it was so new to me, like it was, did you feel like it was kind of boundary breaking, that book? Or I just hadn't been exposed to books like that? Oh, wow. So I'm trying to think like how uncommon it was when that came out for books to be written in, you know, emails and traffic tickets and... It was so creative. Definitely, maybe. But I wouldn't write off humor altogether because a whole lot of readers feel the same way you did because the the works are very, very different in tone. They're both meant to be uh. funny, but it's a different approach. And I didn't read anything by Maria Semple prior to Where'd You Go, Bernadette? But I did hear a lot of readers say that Today Will Be Different was a lot more like what she'd written previously and Where'd You Go, Bernadette was the outlier. Oh, I see. Maybe this one individual book just wasn't for you. Maybe. People with reading lives that fill their hearts with joy are able to identify what kind of books are not for them. And not every book is for every reader. And Mm -hmm. that is okay. But being able to articulate why will really Mm -hmm. help you steer yourself towards books that you really do enjoy. They will help you find more broccoli. Hopefully find a book that's funny that I enjoy so that I can differentiate between which ones I like. Yes. What are you reading right now? So I just finished An American Marriage. What'd you think? It was gut-wrenching. Like, 
reading it was painful, but I enjoyed it because it was such a page turner. And I just, once I started, I couldn't stop reading it. I was frustrated by the choices of the characters. I felt like they were making very bad choices. <laughs> but the writing was really good. It was a neat way to talk about, again, the issue of race, but through family relationships. So this is An American Marriage by Tiari Jones. I think she said that her mentor told her once that you want to write about people and their problems, not problems and their people. Mm. So, and how she's done all this research for a big book on mass incarceration, but like, it's all about the people, but of course it's about the issue, which is hard. I mean, which is hard to read. It was effective. Yeah. What else are you reading? I have a couple of books that my friends have lent me. One is called The Female Persuasion by Mm -hmm. Meg Walter. Have you read that one? I thought it was really well done, but it was hard to read. Is it broccoli too? Um, maybe not with as much cheese, but yeah. I thought it was really well done. It's a hard read, trigger warnings bound, but really well put together. I'm looking forward to it. Cindy, I know there's a couple of things that you'd like to be different about your reading life. What are you thinking there? Yeah, so I've discovered that I seem to have a recent bias. I like all things new and shiny. And so I get distracted by all the new books that are coming out. And I feel like I'm missing all the books from maybe five, 10 years ago that were really good that I never got around to reading it because new books keep coming out. So I think I would like to go back and read some of those books that are not so new and shiny, but are still really good books. Okay. I see what you mean because it feels like new books get all the buzz. Right. I also really like to know a book has endured for five or 10 years because something that's just generating buzz on the basis of a great publicity team alone isn't maybe something that people are going to remember in five years. Not that there aren't books that tend to be forgotten that shouldn't be, but I do like to know that a book has staying power and can make it for 10 years and have people still enjoy reading it. Which brings up something you mentioned earlier about literary fiction and struggling to figure out your relationship with what you called highbrow literature. Could you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I just, sometimes it's, it is hard for me to decide what's literary or not. Like, for example, is Jody Picoult literary? No, she sells too many copies. I kid, but not really. Yeah, sometimes it does feel like these mass-produced books and, you know, what I call airport novels aren't necessarily literary, but I feel like she does address themes. I mean, to me, what's literary are books that really explore what it means to be human. And some of her books do do that. And some of the airport novels do that. You know, sometimes I like to craft my public image of what books that that I read and I want to appear highbrow and literary, but in reality, I just enjoy Jodi Picoult. And, you know, is that considered literary or is it only these classics that we read in high school that's literary? So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's an interesting conversation. And I do think it's probably subjective. And then, of course, you have to take into account the gatekeepers, critics, and the publishers. They determine to get the awards. Uh, so maybe that's another way to, you know, to decide what's literary or not, is whether or not they get the awards. What do you think? The distinction is wildly subjective. Some readers and some authors have really passionately advocated that this is garbage and that by putting literary Mm -hmm. as a modifier in front of fiction, you're Mm -hmm. doing great disservice to all the other books. And yet I do think as a reader looking for um, books I want to read, like in the same way that I want to know if a book is a mystery or a romance, Mm -hmm. I like to know if it might be considered literary because that helps me decide whether or not I want to read it right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And you're right. Like you're right about the gatekeepers. Uh, we hear a lot that's like, oh, there are no gatekeepers in 2018. Like it doesn't exist anymore. People can write whatever they want, but Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think that's at all true when it comes to fiction. You know what? I was just talking, um, to a friend the other day and she was saying that she really loved Kristen Hanna's The Nightingale more than Anthony Doerr's All Delight We Cannot See. And she said that she thought Hanna deserved the Pulitzer, but it wasn't even going to be considered because people bestowing the awards saw that as genre fiction, not as literary fiction. And she, Mm. I mean, that was never going to happen. 
So the alternative to literary fiction is genre fiction or contemporary fiction. So some people give a really basic description, which is literary fiction is any fiction that doesn't have a genre, which I think is kind of ridiculous, but you will hear people toss that around as a description. Some people say that literary fiction is fiction explicitly written with style in the prose, which I think is also kind of dumb. Every piece of writing has style. What does that mean? There are people who say, well, literary fiction is fiction that aims to explore deep issues of human nature and the human experience in narratives where not a lot happens. Much of the action is interior and there's not a lot of plot. Well, that just sounds boring. Right? It really does. I'm about to make a lot of people mad, but something that really helped me understand the distinction is uh, conversations I've had with authors writing in the two different worlds and explaining to me that the boundaries are very, very fuzzy. So this is, this is a framework that might help you understand, not a definitive explanation of the way the world works. There are two markets. Genre fiction is being written to sell books to readers by authors who love to write stories. Literary fiction is often coming out of MFA programs like in New York or Iowa or California being written by writers for writers. And the goal and end result of literary fiction is often not to sell a bazillion copies, but to earn a professorship. It's work that is written for that community. Not that it can't go on and sell heaps and tons of copies, but Mm -hmm. it's written with a different audience in mind, often for a different purpose through a different process. So it's, it's almost like they write for the critics or they write for the literary community and not necessarily for the people. Is that true or is that fair? (laughs) I think, I think that's a helpful beginning. Interesting. If you're a listener and you have thoughts, we'd love to hear them. But the reason this is so hard to talk about is because it is very murky. And it's hard because different people consider different works literary. Like I'm thinking of Chris Cleave. Like I loved Everyone Brave mm. is Forgiven. I thought that was yeah. highly stylized, very literary. But then people have said to me, you know, I thought that was pretty good for a, for a you know, popular novel. Or I feel that way about Amor Tolls. Like, oh, you know, for something that's <laughs> meant for general consumption, that was mm. pretty good. I'm like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Like I thought I would call that literary fiction, no doubt. Mm-hmm. But then I hear some books called literary and I want to be like, ah, you know, really? Yeah. So it is wildly subjective. Yes. So what do you think you like to read? I like to read all of it personally. So I've heard some people say like, oh, I won't read anything if it doesn't have that like literary label. Right. No, I'm not snobby. Yeah. You'd miss out on a lot of good books if you only read something that said literary fiction in like New York Times review. I think I want to read books that I enjoy. So if it's a book that's so dry or so only for the interior life, I don't think I'd be very interested in that. Like I want to be entertained. So I'm not going to uh, reject a book because it's not literary enough. But I also really need my books to have substance and to make me feel like I've grown and matured a little bit after reading it. A book that's purely entertainment is not quite enough for me. And this is where I think the distinction is delightfully blurry because like Jodi Pakul is not considered a literary writer. But if I had a nickel for every reader who said, oh my gosh, like small great things blew my mind the way it addressed this really important issue in my life and in the world. I really like small great things. I think it helps me be a better person. The amount of research that she does is respectable. Yes. To circle back, a lot of people think literary fiction is fiction that explicitly asks you to challenge your beliefs and the way you see the world. And yet that's what a great book does, period, the end. Right. Whether or not it does it like explicitly on page 87. Agreed. All right, Cindy. After our conversation, how are you feeling about your reading identity? No, I think it was clarifying. In terms of whether or not a book is literary or not, I think I've just decided to determine whether a book is good for me or not. So my reading identity from now on is going to be books that I like. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Cindy, here's what I see myself looking for for you. You like books that have interesting plots where people do things and go places, whether or not that means around the world. Yes, I do like a good, good adventure. Books that probe into issues that matter to you. Books with characters that make you feel things. Definitely. 
you're clearly not afraid to go long. I mean, between the world and me, the audiobook is three hours. That is not a long book. Right. I'll read a long book if it captures my attention. Okay. And just thinking about your love of memoir, also books like Cutting for Stone and Americana, just like getting into other people's really interesting experiences. There's a lot to choose from. Have you ever read this nonfiction book by Anne Fadiman? It's called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. I haven't. Okay. The subtitle is A Hmong Child, Her American Doctors, and the Collision of Two Cultures. That does sound right up my alley. I love Anne Fadiman. She wrote a series of literary essays that are laugh out loud funny in places. So you may actually enjoy them, especially if you are a compulsive proofreader or tend to abuse your books and want to read about somebody else doing the same. So that's called Ex Libris, Confessions of a Common Reader. But she's not as well known for this, except maybe among the critics, because this one got raves when it came out. And you know, I'm not sure about the timing, but we are definitely in your not new and shiny. This is maybe like eight to 15 years ago. So this is one of those nonfiction narratives that absolutely reads like a novel. And it's about a refugee family that has a child that suffers from severe epilepsy. They move from their home country to California and then have a series of interesting and page-turning experiences between the American doctors who mean well and the wider cultural community that the family has there, what this child really needs. And it's about cultural identity and being in but not of and trying to do the right thing when the voices informing that are very, very different. Finding your identity in unexpected places and also medicine, which you found very intriguing in Cutting for Stone. How does that sound? That sounds amazing. Fadiman has said that it was different for her to write this book about this child with epilepsy and their journey into the medical community, and then also write, you know, essays about how you bought more books than you can carry at the bookstore, that those are very, very different thing, and that it's led to some identity crises for her. So that may be a fun little meta tidbit on that. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. There's a new book just out, and it's about tough choices and belonging and identity and crossing cultural and racial divides. And it is That Kind of Mother by Ruman Alam. Do you know anything about this? I don't. His debut was Rich and Pretty. It came out a couple of years ago. I personally like this one a lot more. So here's what happens. It's set in the late 80s, early 90s in Washington, D.C. And there's a diplomat's wife, blonde, pretty. I mean, she's rich and pretty. Maybe not as much money as her husband would like to be making, but like plenty of money. She's at the hospital giving birth to her firstborn and like it does not go well. She just feels completely overwhelmed by the demands of new motherhood. She is a poet herself. And so she very quickly is trying to figure out like, how am I going to do my work that matters to me? You know, like I feel like I put my vocation on hold and she's also like really struggling with the anxieties visited upon her by this overwhelming event in her life. And then enters this nurse who is the one person who can like put her mind at ease. And she does that to such an extent that the diplomat's wife begs her to quit her very good job that was hard to get and to come work for her as her nanny. So the diplomat's wife is white. The nanny is black. In the interim, the nanny has a baby of her own. And a few years later, when the nanny dies, the diplomat's wife comes forward and says, I love this child. I've been caring for this child while we tried to figure everything out. Like, I want to raise this child. And so she does. Wow. Her husband thinks she is not prepared for the demands of raising a black child in Washington, D.C., in their white family with their white child. And that's what happens next. Then they live the story for 20 years. That sounds super interesting, especially because I'm diving into these conversations about parenting and issues of racial justice. It's going to be really good for me to digest. Well, it's a really strong premise. And most of the action we see through the eyes of the diplomat's wife. And she is by turns compassionate and sensitive and really infuriating because you're thinking, you said what? You want to do what? You don't understand what? There are some conversations that will make you go, oh, Rebecca, what? are you thinking? But it does show a woman, you know, in two families grappling with what the right thing is to do. Alam brings in like cultural events and common struggles for black children that the white family doesn't have any experience with are a little painful to read, but also like really taking the like capital I issues and showing what those mean in, in these two families. 
That does sound interesting, but it also does sound like it would be frustrating. It's supposed to frustrate you. Sounds good. Do you know anything about, this is another new book. It's not as new. It's almost been out a whole year, Cindy. (laughs) It's called Home Fire. It's by Kamala Shamsi. Do you know anything about this? No, I don't. This (laughs) is a quote unquote literary novel. It was long listed for the Man Booker Prize. Oh, which is what we should have said. Like the literary stuff. If it's on the long list for the Man Booker, the Pulitzer, the National Book Awards. It's literary. Somebody considers it literary fiction. Mm -hmm. Okay. I don't know how this is going to strike you, but it's a contemporary retelling in novel form of Sophocles play Antigone. Do you know anything about Antigone? I don't. Okay. You know, that's okay. I didn't either. I had to Google the whole story and figure it out. And then it was really interesting to puzzle together, like how the characters matched up between now and more than 2000 years ago. But the story is contemporary. Yes. I mean, the first line is, Isma was going to miss her flight. She's traveling from London to Logan Airport in Boston. She is Muslim. So she's pulled aside Mm. for security. She's questioned about, the scene is actually really sad and really funny because she's questioned about everything from what she thinks about the queen. And her sister had like snarkily said, like, say something about her style choices. She wears a lot of pastels for an older (laughs) woman um, to the Great British Baking Show to, you know, how she feels about the recent political blah, blah, blah. I like this for you because uh, many of the themes in the book are about identity and allegiances to our family, to our faith, to our culture, to our nation. Mm. We have a family story. There are two twins who are very close and their older sister who practically raised them because their father was a terrorist. You find that out slowly over the course of the story. I wouldn't call that a spoiler though. I think it's on the jacket, but we have a sibling who's done something terrible, who, who wants to undo it. Over the course of the story, you hear how he got pulled into this terrible situation bit by bit, and your heart really goes out to him. Shamsi is what, where is she? She was raised in Karachi, and she currently lives in London. So this novel came out in the UK in 2016, and one of her characters is the British Home Secretary. She made him a not terribly religious Muslim who was a Pakistani immigrant to London. She said that when the story came out, she thought, is anybody going to believe this? Like, I want my story to be realistic. Is this too far-fetched? But then in May, when Amber Rudd resigned as the home secretary, the new appointee was Sajid Javid, who is what she predicted. Like, that is her character in her novel. He's a Pakistani immigrant who is Muslim. The commentary on that has been really, really interesting. So we have a story about love and politics and identity and allegiances with some really complicated family issues all the way around. I think we can, like, check your boxes here. There's a novel that is about big picture issues that matter, like to us individually, and also people working through their faith and what it actually means in their life. It has quite the ending, Cindy, which anyone who knows the story of Antigone won't be thinking, yes, of course it does. And it's just under 300 pages, so it goes fast. Is the ending controversial? I don't know why I need to know that. I'm just wondering, like, is it one of those you either love it or hate it endings? (laughs) Yeah, you'll either go, that is perfect, or darn you, Sophocles, why did this have to be a tragedy? Oh, it sounds really good. I have to put in a plug for Stay With Me by Ayobami Adebayo. So this is a really great novel for you, I think. It opens with fairly modern. This is also set like 20 years ago. Um, A young Nigerian couple are at home when his parents show up with her husband's second wife in tow that she didn't know he had married because they'd agreed they weren't going to do that. So that's our, like, let's get started with the bang story. Wow, super intriguing. So much of the plot unfolds in a hair salon where all the good conversation happens. Yes. You know, I just um, found out from my grandmother that her father had many wives. We've been digging into some family history. Polygamy was very common in that generation, And so, yeah, it really lends itself to really great stories. So I'm looking forward to this. Okay. Great. I have a, you know, a good list to go off for my summer read. All right, Cindy, of these books, what do you think you'll read next? I think I'm most interested in that one. Stay with me. I cannot wait to hear what you think. And I will be interested in hearing more about your evolving reading personality. 
Thank you so much, Anne. You're you're amazing. These books that you've recommended sound exactly like the ones I'd want to read. Well, I'm so glad. And thanks for talking books with me today. Thank you. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Cindy today. Cindy lives all the way around the globe, and sometimes with great distance comes great technical difficulties. I hope you'll forgive the change in audio quality for those last 10 minutes all went well until right at the end. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Cindy and maybe to share a story of how a book influenced the way you see yourself. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 140. That's 140. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Next week's episode is a huge treat for my fellow personality geeks. If you are a current fan of the Enneagram, you are going to love this. If you don't know what that E-word just meant, no worries. Next week's guest, Ian Cron, and I are going to tell you all about it. Here's a sneak peek of Ian discussing how the Enneagram and the writing process intersect. What makes characters interesting isn't the traits they share with every other person of their type, but the way that they uniquely carry those traits. All the other things that affect the ways that we behave, disposition and temperament and experience and culture and, you know, race and gender. I mean, you know, you name it, these collisions of forces. If you start messing around with stereotypes, I think you could end up being a very lazy writer. It's almost like um, rather than really explore, do the hard work of exploring and, and particularizing a character. You know, I'll just read on what fours are like. I, I think that's more interesting for an actor or a screenwriter to do or a casting director to do, but not for an author, not for a novelist. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Hello Android users, Spotify, or any other podcast application you choose. And if you want to indulge in some personality geekery in the meantime, check out Ian's book, The Road Back to You, all about the Enneagram, or my book, Reading People, How Seeing the World Through the Lens of Personality Changes Everything, about my own seven favorite personality frameworks. We'll see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!